Well, my friends, if you haven't realized it by now, America is at war, really at war, an existential war for the future of this country. There's an old saw that says that generals and admirals were always preparing to fight the last war. That's true for populations as well. We're all prepared to fight the last war. We thought that the censorship and the intimidation would come in the form of men with guns with black uniforms, and so we prepared ourselves for that. We are a heavily armed culture, but they're not coming at us with uh, guys with machine guns, and they're not coming at us with guys in tanks. They're coming at us with ideas. They're coming at us with psychological warfare. They're coming at us with emergency mandates. They're coming at us with weapons that we not only were not ready for, we couldn't even imagine. We are at war, and we are at a stage in this war that has been repeated many times in human history. So this is what I want to talk to you about today. I study history. I study the history of warfare. And I don't just study one war. I, I try very hard to study all war. I'm looking for patterns in this most awful of human endeavors. And I found a few. And what I want to do is I want to give you three examples from history and try and show you why these examples fit where we are today in this cultural war. And then we can draw some conclusions from that history. So let's start with the first one. On March 21st, 1918, the final year of World War I, the German army launched what was known as the Ludendorff Offensives. It began with Operation Michael. The Germans had been massing troops behind the line for quite a long time. And we have to remember that Germany at the time was sitting on about a third of France that it had taken very early in the war. The trench warfare that had continued for three bloody years was not going anywhere. British and French assaults would continue to gain a few hundred yards at the cost of 15,000 people, 16,000 killed in the first day, really within the first hour, just on the Battle of the Somme alone for the British Army. The Germans had the high ground. That's where they put the line. They had well-fortified bunkers, and they were killing the French and the, and the British at a ratio of about three to one. The Germans knew that if they could just simply hold that line, against repeated attacks, sooner or later, the British and the French would run out of will or men or blood or treasure or all of them, and then they would sue for peace. There would be an armistice and a peace treaty, and the new border of Germany would be covering all of the territory that they'd taken from France at the beginning of the war. And this was their plan, and that plan was working. But when America entered the war in 1917, that equation changed wasn't felt for a while yet, but by the time you got to early 1918, American troops were coming ashore in France in large numbers, and those numbers were getting larger every day, and that changed the equation. Now the Germans realized that time wasn't on their side anymore. Time was on the side of the Allies. If they didn't end this war now, meaning early 1918, then the buildup of Americans, millions of Americans, and not these, not these scrawny coal miner sons from uh, northern England, we're talking about corn-fed, beef-fed Iowa farm boys who were seven, eight inches taller than the, the troops that they were replacing. They knew that the Americans would end the war, and the Germans had to finish the war before the Americans could really arrive in force. So they launched this sneak attack called Operation Michael. Here's the thing you need to remember about all three of these examples. Even though there was some indication that they were building up forces, on the morning of that attack, that attack was so successful, it was so unexpected, the tactics that they were using were so new. They were no longer advancing in lines. The Germans had small groups of stormtroopers, is what they called them, with flamethrowers, and they would just bypass all of these hard points and just kept pushing. So in the first day or two of Operation Michael, in a war that had measured a huge victory by 500 yards, 
found the Germans 15, 20, 30 miles behind them. And as the Allies continued to retreat, they would find that the place they think they're retreating to has already fallen to the Germans. In the first few weeks of Operation Michael, everybody in the English and French armies and England and France as well, to the degree that they got the information, were pretty sure that they had lost the war, that this overwhelming tide, this unstoppable tide of German army troops simply could not be resisted. And Operation Michael spread, found its limits, ran out of steam. They launched two more, weren't as successful. They ran out of steam. And let's leave that example there for a minute. Okay, second example, 22nd of June, 1941, Operation Barbarossa. Adolf Hitler launches an assault into the Soviet Union. Very similar in a lot of ways to the Ludendorff offensives. Massive buildups along the border, but the Soviets simply couldn't believe it was coming. They simply could not believe it, that their pact with Adolf Hitler would be broken by a sneak attack, and that's what it was. It was the largest offensive in history, and when those German tanks and troops started to roll on that morning, their gains were simply unimaginable. The Russians were so unprepared for this. Three or four hours before the attack started, a German deserter crossed the river, swam over to the Soviet lines and said, this attack is coming, it's coming in two hours. They radioed this back to the Kremlin. Stalin had that man shot because he was convinced he was a provocateur. The Germans cut, captured so much territory so fast and killed so many people, including my wife's grandfather, that it seemed like there would be no way to stop these Germans. And they kept coming and coming and coming and coming and coming. Utter panic. Virtually all of the Soviet Air Force, the Red Air Force, was destroyed within the first couple days of that first offensive. Virtually all of them. Something like 15,000 planes destroyed. Stalin was so astonished and, and, and shocked by this that he simply disappeared. He simply disappeared. Here's a dictatorship run by a dictator. The dictator's gone to his dacha, and he is sitting there having a nervous breakdown. And the Germans just kept coming, and they kept coming, and they kept coming. It was a sneak attack, and it had one objective, to take the Soviet Union out of the war, meaning capture Moscow, destroy the political structure of the Soviet Union, and turn all of Russia into a group of partisans which they could handle. But they had to knock Russia out of the war. That's what Operation Barbarossa was designed to do. And in the early phases of it, they faced the same confusion that they faced during the Ludendorff offensives. What is going on? This, they're unstoppable. They're unbeatable. The war is lost. We've lost the war. It's over. We've never seen this kind of an attack before. Confusion and panic everywhere. So that's the second example. Now, the third example is the one I want to concentrate on the most. It happened six months later. It happened on the morning of December 7, 1941, when the Imperial Japanese Navy attacked the U.S. Pacific Fleet at Pearl Harbor. It was a sneak attack, and it had an objective as well. Its objective was to eliminate the United States Navy in the Pacific. That's what the Japanese hoped to accomplish. And they damn near did it, too. They sank most of the battleships that were in Pearl Harbor. They essentially destroyed the U.S. Pacific Fleet. They thought that if they could destroy the U.S. Pacific Fleet, then they could convince America that what Japan wanted in Southeast Asia, the United States could no longer stop them from achieving. The Japanese really never intended to invade America. They wanted access to all the oil and rubber in Southeast Asia, and the American Navy stood in their way. So they had a sneak attack that destroyed the American Navy at Pearl Harbor on that morning. And we all know how that story goes. In the very first minutes of the attack with the Japanese planes coming in low underneath this brand new mysterious radar thing, 
there were multiple reports of kids out there playing baseball or, or wives hanging out clothes to dry on laundry lines and seeing these green planes come over with the red meatballs on the wings and seeing the pilots in the planes waving at them, waving down at them. And they waved back. Had to be a training mission of some kind, surely. When the bombs started falling in Pearl Harbor and things started to explode, most American sailors thought that this was a training exercise. They simply could not believe what they were seeing. I had that same exact experience on the morning of September 11th. I could not believe my eyes. And the Japanese sneak attack was astonishingly successful. It was one of the greatest single raids in history. It essentially destroyed the U.S. fleet. Didn't get our carriers, and that made a difference, but the U.S. Navy was out of the game, and out of the game for a while. And we know about Pearl Harbor, but we forget that for the following six months, and I mean every single day for the following six months, the Japanese just went at will. Two, three days after uh, Pearl Harbor, they destroyed a, a British task force, in, uh, including two of their best battleships. They took over the entire Southeast Asia area. They just ran over everything. Nothing could stop them. Knocked us out of the Philippines. They were an unstoppable force. In the hours after Pearl Harbor and in the days and the weeks and even the months after Pearl Harbor, whether you remember it or not, not many of us do anymore, unfortunately, the reaction in the United States of America was panic, despair, and a belief that we had lost a war before it had even started. That's what people felt in the hours after that sneak attack and the days after that sneak attack, and that's what the Russians felt in the days after that Operation Barbarossa sneak attack, and that's what the Allies felt in the days after that Operation Michael sneak attack. So, let me know if any of this sounds familiar to you. On the morning of November 5th, 2020, radical anti-American forces launched an attack on the United States government. I have no question about that whatsoever. They'd been building their forces for a long time. And like the Americans at Pearl Harbor and in the White House and like the Russians and like the Allies, we saw them building their forces, but we were convinced that they wouldn't come. We were convinced that we had adequate defenses against this threat. And so we ignored the threat. And that's what we've been doing for the last 20 years or so, watching them get stronger and stronger, watching them mass their forces. Well, we woke up and found out that the election had been unusual, that voting machines had stopped counting for hours, then started counting again when they were supposed to be shut down for the night, and all of the vote tallies were different. Not going to get into the details of that. You could make the case that the preparation began uh, pretty much a year, almost nine months before that, with the entire COVID pandemic, which turned out worked out pretty well for the forces that were arrayed against America. So we were prepared for a government coming after us with guns, but we weren't prepared for an internal coup that uh, would use the electronics of uh, voting machines, and we certainly weren't prepared for a bioweapon attack that turned out to be precisely calibrated to be just destructive enough to cause mass widespread hysteria, but not so destructive as to destroy basic society. That was a sneak attack. And during the entire last year, we together, all of us, have looked around in panic and despair and amazement and disbelief at the absolutely unstoppable attack that the left has launched against everything that we stand for as Americans. We didn't expect it to come from our own government. We didn't think that the FBI would be one of the major sources on the other side. But that's how sneak attacks work, you see. In the Ludendorff offensives, the Germans had no chance 
to defeat the French and British armies. No chance. The only thing that those offensives were launched for was to introduce enough panic and enough disarray to cause the Allies to surrender, to cause them to surrender. That was the objective. Not to beat them because they couldn't, but to cause them to surrender. When the Germans invaded Russia, their objective was to eliminate organized resistance. They could deal with bands of partisans. They wanted the Red Army ended as a, as a fighting unit, and in order to do that, they had to take Moscow, and they failed. The Japanese had to end the U.S. Pacific Force, and they failed. They got most of it, but they failed. They needed America to surrender. Hitler needed the Russians to surrender. Ludendorff needed the Allies to surrender. And panic and disarray and hair on fire running around, my God, it's the end of the world, is what happened in all of those cases, but they didn't surrender. And that's what's happening right now, right here. Exactly that. That's exactly what's happening. We are running around with our hair on fire, unbelievably looking at the carnage around us and lamenting to ourselves that this has got to be the end. There's no way to stop this. This sneak attack that they launched on us has succeeded. It's all over. That's okay to feel that. Everybody felt that. Everybody did. But it's a funny thing about a sneak attack, you see. You only get to do that once. You only get to wave down at the uh, American housewives as you come in over the island once. You only get to do that once. Once the enemy has taken that hit, meaning the Americans in this particular case, you don't get to fly over Hawaii unmolested anymore. In fact, after Pearl Harbor, the Japanese never got within 100 miles of Pearl Harbor, never got within 500 miles of Pearl Harbor, I don't think. So, where are we now in the culture war? What I'm seeing everywhere right now, today, is that the resistance to this unbelievable sneak attack, this massive assault that the left has been preparing for a long, long time, what I'm seeing is after initial panic and despair, the defenses are starting to stiffen and their offensive is running out of momentum. They do not have the power to put us out of the game. And they never did. None of these sneak attacks ever had the power to defeat us. They only had the power to make us surrender. And they didn't. Which now brings me to the main point, believe it or not. And that is the point of the title of this particular uh, essay. On the morning of December 6th, 1941, the day before the attack, Americans comfortably believed that our fleet at Pearl Harbor, prior to the U.S. Navy, would be enough to stop the Japanese, would be enough to deal with them if things turned into a shooting war. But we were wrong about that. As an example, the most famous loss during Pearl Harbor was the battleship USS Arizona, which was destroyed by a bomb into the magazine and still rests at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, right next to the Missouri, where the battle was won. But USS Arizona, one of those battleships that was going to defend America from the Japanese, was commissioned on the 17th of October, 1916. That was a World War I battleship. That battleship was commissioned before the United States even entered World War I. That battleship was obsolete, and so was everything else in the Pacific Fleet. It was obsolete. They were all obsolete. The Japanese had newer ships, better ships, better training, air power, all of those things. The thing that we counted on to defend us against the Japanese on the morning of December 6th, the thing that we had so much confidence in, this magnificent Pacific fleet, would have been eaten alive by the Japanese Navy if we had met them out at sea. Because like the Arizona, it was obsolete. And I can prove this 
because in the years following the Pearl Harbor attack, many of those battleships were raised, not the Arizona, obviously, but many of her sisters of about the same vintage, older ships that had been in place for a long time prior to the sneak attack on Pearl Harbor. And by the time it came to end the war with victory, all of those battleships that had been at Pearl Harbor could no longer keep up with the Navy. They would bombard shore positions and shell them on Iwo Jima or Guam or wherever else we wanted to go. But in terms of a Navy sent out to kill other ships, the ships that came from Pearl Harbor couldn't keep up. They were obsolete. They remained obsolete. What won the war for the Americans in the Pacific was not the fleet that was destroyed at Pearl Harbor. What won the war in the Pacific was the second fleet. What won the war in the Pacific against the Japanese was the second fleet. Not the one at the sands of the bottom of Pearl Harbor, the one that was built as a result of Pearl Harbor. The super battleships that we eventually produced, Washington-class, South Dakota-class, and then incredible Iowa-class battleships, the aircraft carriers, the Essex-class carriers, far more capable than the trusty Enterprise in Lexington and Saratoga. The fleet that beat the Japanese was not the fleet that we lost. The fleet that we lost was our first fleet, and it would not have beaten the Japanese. It was not capable of it, but the second fleet did. The second fleet blew them out of the water, and that ended with radioactive ash in Nagasaki and Hiroshima. That's how Pearl Harbor ended. I think right now that we are looking around at the wreckage of what we thought would defend us against these people. And we're still looking at things burning. But now, in the back of our minds, we are starting to put together in our own minds, in our own thoughts, what this second fleet of ours will look like. What the fleet that will destroy this left-wing sneak attack will look like in this culture war. We don't have the outlines of it yet, but whatever it's going to be, obsolete is not one of them. Right now, we're beginning the process of going from the one on the right, which is sitting in the mud at the bottom of Pearl Harbor, to the one on the left, which is going to take this war to our enemies and finish them once and for all. And they are going to suffer the same fate as every other insane, aggressive force that ever launched a sneak attack against an enemy that cannot be beaten unless they surrender. And we didn't surrender. So they're going to lose. And they're going to lose hard. 